They say the world can be hard, cruel, and ugly. Trust me, it gets worse if you're hungry and thirst. Doesn't push you from position, last place to first. Can't build a foundation without having feet in the dirt. So I put in the work, grind harder than most. I don't chase accolades of the living, I'm facing a ghost. That's what makes me the GOAT. Depending on who you ask, my brother, whatever task. Got it covered like a mask, guaranteed they can't see me at the open run. Cause I cook competitors until they look well done. Don't act like you don't know where I held from. I had to climb about the trenches, sit on benches, throw my time and come. Don't be mad at the player, be mad at the game. Sneak this in the hating, that's a flag on the play. Me falling off, huh? That'll be the day I'm like, bolt in the race, leave the track, flambe, it's the open run. I teach young people about hip hop culture and slang is always a big part of what our culture is, how we speak, how we communicate effectively with one another. And this is no different. And to be clear, I am slanguistically correct. And you should be too. You're speaking to young people and they tell you that the party, it was a vibe. Or this weekend was a whole movie. And I'm a big movie dude. So I try to understand, I guess, they're living out this movie. They're living vicariously through these things like this, this emotion, this event. And it made me think about this movie, Scream, is coming out. They're talking about Ghostface. I'm like, wait, the only Ghostface I acknowledge is Dennis Coles. But that's me. Shout out to my birthday brother. Wu-Tang! And while Scream or Scary Movie or whatever they call it is supposed to be something... There's a movie that really, I wouldn't say set it off because there were other scary movies way before this one. But in 1968, the United States was going through change. The world was going through change. Dramatic change. I mean, the 60s were wild. They'll tell you about the summer of peace and love. And they'll tell you about Woodstock. They won't tell you about the Harlem Cultural Festival, which people like to misname or, or tag as Black Woodstock. But... That's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother day. But the 60s were more than that. I mean, you had assassination attempts on all kinds of global leaders because they didn't want this idea of democracy not to dominate the globe. So Fidel Castro, he's on his way out. You got Patrice Lumumba, who was murdered in the Congo. You had John F. Kennedy killed in 63. Megger Everest, Malcolm X killed in 65. Robert F. Kennedy killed in 68. Martin Luther King Jr. killed in 68 turmoil the social climate was wild man wild and there was a movie called the night of the living dead which on surface seems like just a zombie movie until you realize the social commentary that was going on in that movie still in the midst of the vietnam war and how the world was allegedly changing but you need to know that america's gonna america as long as america is gonna be america so whatever cosmetic changes they make to make you believe the aesthetic is moving forward or is changing and adapting to the times, be sure you look with a keen eye and listen with a keen ear. It's not always to be. But this movie, Night of the Living Dead, where these zombies and ghouls are taking over, what ends up happening in this movie is that for the first time we see a black character in a mainstream movie, I guess you want to call it mainstream, George Romero would call it that, who produced and directed the movie, that the hero was a black man who saved society in, in, in microcosm and saved people from these flesh-eating zombies. The black guy is normally the first one to die in these kinds of movies. It's just what it was. I don't know if that's an inside joke in our community or not, but 
it wasn't so much of a joke when you realized it was happening for real. Except for in this movie, where the hero Ben makes it to the end and as a mob of first responders, if you want to call them that, or people coming to kill off the rest of the zombies and help save whoever was still alive inside the house that he had barricaded himself in after killing off so many of the zombies himself. This redneck mob that was coming to, I guess, save everyone, mistakenly thought that he, too, was a zombie, so they killed him. Sounds familiar? Probably. But I don't do hero worship, and I won't tell you what to do, but what I will ask you to do is allow me to reintroduce myself. This is The Open Run with Will Strickland, and that would be me. The Open Run with Will Strickland is brought to you by the fine folks at Press. We are Press.net. I can be found across these rough interweb streets at W underscore Strickland and the number one on Twitter, Will Strickland and the number one on IG and across all streaming platforms where podcasts can be found. In that movie, the hero dies. And sometimes it's heroic, I guess, when the hero dies, sacrificing himself for the betterment of mankind. That wasn't the case here. And it shouldn't be the case for one Demetrius Jamel Morant. Since I was first introduced to him as his leapfrogging player at Murray State, small school in Kentucky. He wasn't highly recruited out of high school, even though he played on a pretty good AAU team. He had a pretty visible AAU teammate in Zion Latif Williamson coming out of South Carolina themselves. But John Morant was not that guy at the time. He just was not. And he worked hard, and you see some videos in the early days where his dad, T, was working him out in their backyard. Jumper on tires, flipping tires, working on his vertical, working on his game, and those hot summers, just working, 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 not knowing where or how or if he could fulfill his dream. His father, probably living vicariously through him because he too had a college career, wanted to see his child give his child the best opportunity possible. That's sufficient daddy. Through this process of working and working and working, John Morant got better got more visible, had a great NCAA tournament. People saw what he could do as a leader, as a passer, as somebody who could leap over tall buildings on a single bound and still keep it grounded because his teammates loved him. That is Demetrius Jamel Morant. And in him, I started to say, you must trust. But is that trust being broken with recent allegations of him showing up at the mall after a dispute his mother had at a footwear and apparel store in the mall. People still go to the mall? And why would John Morant's mom have to go to the mall to shop for sneakers? That tripped me out. Unless she wanted something that wasn't Nike. I don't know, but she was there. Allegedly, there was an issue with some teenage, acne, pockmarked faced kid. And allegedly, Josh showed up nine deep to confront some high school kid about his dispute with his mother. And I get it. I'm defending my mothers to the end. But to show up heavy like that, maybe it is the violence in Memphis that determines all that. Or maybe it's just the flex. I'm going to lean in toward the latter because he is John Morant. Even the mall cop who stepped to him made me think of Milo Stanfield stealing dumb, dumb suckers from Little Hood Bodega in Baltimore and the security guard for what it's worth on a Sunday morning. Watching him do it. And not knowing whether or not to intervene. I mean, his little minimum wage job, standing in the way of a guy who could have him murdered, and eventually did, or hurt at the very least. 
But he's a man too. He wants to step to him and wants to be respected for what he's doing. You're disrespecting my job. I have to do my job. I don't know what happened between the kid and John Morant's mom at the sneaker store in the mall. But that's irrelevant. The fact that Josh showed up like that is something to think about. Like, who are you trying to be? And then in a pickup game at his home, at, at his home, allegedly there was a beef between Ja and a kid who I guess is a pretty decent recruit, one of the top basketball players in the city for sure, where it's alleged that the kid threw the ball at Ja Morant's head and assaulted him first. And so Ja put hands on him. Then the kid was like, look, I'm going to light up this place like a Christmas tree. This is where his family lives. His daughter lives. His beloveds, they're all there. Bigs and littles. So it is alleged that John went into the house, came back out with a gun in his waistband and his hand on the gun. I understand defending your home. That threat is a credible threat. Most recently, we've been talking about the violence in Memphis, whether it's cops killing the young man just a while ago or young Dolph going to get cookies, this rapper from Memphis, and being lit up. I can understand because the environment exists in this place. Again, not trying to knock Memphis. This is a place I love going to Memphis. And then you top it off after losing in Denver and going on your IG Live and, a, and brandishing a weapon. It looked like a gun. I don't know if it was his or not. Not the point. And whether you're in Tennessee, which is an open carry state, and he has every right to protect himself. He can own as many guns as he wants. I mean, there was a two-time... MVP of the league, who was a gun-toting NRA supporting member. His name was Carl Anthony Malone. Nothing wrong with that. But it is wrong for John Morant to do this in light of all the allegations against him. It's, it speaks to a tone deafness. It speaks to a lack of awareness. You have to be smarter. And so now the blame game starts. But who do we blame? Who do we put this on? Do we talk about his father, T. Morant? would put him in position to do this with his work and being involved so engaged in this young man's life and now becoming a celebrity himself is he more LeVar Ball now than he is a father does he want to be his friend is he a part of the entourage is he trying to live out his second childhood riding the wave as the younglings might say of his son's fame these things could be alleged based on the interactions you see T. Morant being compared to Usher and sitting next to Usher at games. Like, he should be able to enjoy this, no doubt. But there's a line of demarcation that has to happen when you're thinking about your son. And your son is in charge. He's changed the dynamic of your home now. John Morant is the whole dinner winner there now. He supports an ecosystem of people, friends, hangers-on, well-wishers, and maybe even no-gooders. And when you see someone make it out there, you're always going to have people who come at you a certain way or want more from you. And Jalen Rose is so eloquent in this because he comes from Detroit. He was caught up in high school. He was caught up in college, you know, just being around the dope game. So if anyone can speak to coming out of the depths of that and trying to figure out, navigate between keeping it real and keeping it right, Jalen Anthony Rhodes has some bars for that. Respect too. Detroit stand up. What up though? Another city known for its violence, the violence that occurs in there. I mean, it was the murder capital for years. And when you cross a certain line, optics are one thing. Understanding those optics are another thing. And my dear old dad, blessed dead, used to always ask me, what's worse than a diss or a slight? 
and I didn't know until he told me a perceived one. So if someone who's really about that life, who really likes to get active in these streets, looks at that IG live and feels like it's a credible threat to him or to them or to their lifestyle, and they take action, does that change everything for John Moran? Some things you can't negotiate out of. This could be one of those things. When I was talking about Night of the Living Dead and how the hero dies at the end, it made me think about another vehicle, content vehicle that was showing something. It was called Scooby-Doo. I've said that Scooby-Doo is my favorite cartoon of all time, mostly because at the end of the cartoon that the monsters are just real people. There's some monsters in your crew. And there's maybe even a monster inside of you who wants to be something you're not. And that's the hardest thing to be in this life is something that you're not. Think about what I'm saying. And so I'm not here to necessarily offer an intervention to John Moran or to T. Moran. In the words of Aubrey Drake Graham, there are no new friends. But if these friends you have around you now are not about making sure you're okay, worked Michael Vick, and putting you in better positions to be great and not to mess up the church house money, you might have to get away from them. Again, going back to my father, and hopefully T. Morant gets to him at some point. He said something to me one day when I was trying to be something that I wasn't. And my father was a noted tough guy. Got the same DNA, maybe not the same blood in that way. Because I didn't have to be that. Tell my son the same thing. It's the gift and the curse of doing better. And trying to make sure you can protect yours from the things you had to navigate when you were younger. But my dear old dad, bless the dead, said to me, I want you to find something you're willing to die for, like I am for you, and then live for it. Truer words have never been spoken. And maybe John Morant, who is going to be out indefinitely, suspended by the Grizzlies and suspending himself from it, and allegedly if that gun was his and he took it onto any sort of NBA property, he could miss up to 50 games. I don't know if he's good in the West now, but... Hopefully he'll get good with himself soon and you'll come back for more on the other side of this on The Open Run with Will Strickland. Back giving you more of what you asked for. It's The Open Run with Will Strickland. He to talk a little college basketball. It is now March and the madness is about to ensue. I'm so excited. I don't gamble, but I do play my tournament brackets and everything. I want to shout out Coach C. Vivian Stringer. Last place we knew, when we first got introduced to Coach, who became the first black coach, male or female, to win 1,000 games in the NCAA, she started off at Cheney State with John Cheney. There's a little HBCU in Pennsylvania. And she was there as a professor. I mean, she's Dr. C. Vivian Stringer. She took the job as the volunteer coach. She didn't get paid for it. They didn't have locker rooms, showers, nothing. What they did have in 1982 was eight high school All-American players. I don't know how that happened. I'm not talking about no money, no nothing, because if they didn't have money for locker rooms, they definitely didn't have money for players. But what was it about Coach String that made these young ladies come there to play for Cheney State? During the season, they won 19 straight games, make it to the NCAA Finals, the first HBCU to ever do that. They lost to eventual champion Louisiana Tech, who was tough in the 80s. And you see this being carried on, this tradition being carried on 
as we celebrate International Women's A Day here on the podcast and every day in life. So shouts out to C. Vivian Stringer and shouts out to the great Dawn Staley doing Aflac commercials with Coach K. I love the fact that they're doing this with her because she is, I don't want to even compare her, but you know what? Comparing her to another, a man, especially a white man, is kind of something different. And when I say different in that, it's generally acknowledged that one of the best college coaches in basketball history is Coach K. But so is Dawn Staley. She's in that same breath. The first black person to ever, male or female, to win multiple national championships. See Vivian Stringer won one when she was at Iowa. She ended up at Rutgers. Shouts out to Tammy Sutton Brown of the Raptors 905. Used to play for her there at Rutgers. But Dawn Staley and her South Carolina Gamecocks winning the regular season SEC title for the seventh time in the past nine years. Salute to you, Coach Dawn. And also salute to Kenny Brooks, the first black women's coach to win the Atlantic Coast Conference, the ACC. So there's lots of celebration to go around and lots of love. And and shouts out to Washington State for winning the Pac-12 with teams like Arizona and Stanford and UCLA out there. Washington State wins the regular season? Well, I'm looking forward to the bids as... Selection Sunday is coming up this upcoming weekend. I cannot wait also to see National Player of the Year candidate Caitlin Clark, who put up 30-17-10 in a championship-clinching victory over the Ohio State University as her Iowa Hawkeyes. Went on to win the Big Ten Championship. They're going to miss her at Iowa when she goes. But let's talk about the top five for one of the last times this season on the women's side. At number one, on a 38-game losing strike. Yes, I did not stutter. It's not a typo. 38 games, including 32 this season. The University of South Carolina Gamecocks SEC Tournament MVP, Aaliyah Boston, who's also a National Player of the Year candidate, the reigning and defending National Player of the Year, scheduled to go number one in the WNBA draft. Yeah. University of South Carolina at number one. At number two, the Iowa Hawkeyes. I could not see them being anywhere else. But shouts out to Kenny Brooks and the Virginia Tech Hokies making it to the top five for the first time this season at number three on an 11-game losing strike themselves. At number four, the Indiana University Hoosiers. And number five, the LSU Tigers, whose freshman star, Flage Johnson, I caught this past weekend, spitting bars. Young Hoopin' Barbarian doing her thing in the post-game interview, even though they lost in the semifinals to Tennessee of the SEC tournament. Shouts out to her, and good luck to all of the women. I, again, will have coverage on Selection Sunday about who's going to make it and who's going to get your bracket busted immediately. On the men's side, I want to send condolences to the players who have to listen to Texas Tech head coach Mark Adams spit racially insensitive remarks for which he was suspended. Something about slaves honoring their masters and such. Well, he tried to make it a biblical reference. You just have to read the room better, my guy. Or maybe that's just who you are. He's already on the hot seat. And I don't know what it is about Chris Beard. I can't blame Chris Beard for this. But he was an assistant under Chris Beard when he was there before he went down to Texas. Maybe they bring Chris Beard back. You never know. He needs a job. It could happen. Am I playing coaching matchmaker over here? Let me stop. But Mark Adams from Texas Tech suspended for racially insensitive remarks. But I am sensitive when I think about March 4th, 1990. 
I can recall exactly where I was and what I was doing when I heard the news of Eric Wilson Hank Gathers passing after catching an alley-oop in a West Coast Conference game. It was that conference tournament, as a matter of fact, against University of Portland. University of Portland had a nice little point guard by the name of Eric Spolstra. Yes, the same Eric Spolstra who is now the two-time champion as a head coach of the Miami Heat. is on the court. After Gathers caught the alley-oop dunk, ran back to his place to play defense and the zone press that Loyola Marymount, his school, that they played under Paul Westhead, collapsed on the court. And he gained consciousness for a moment, but eventually perished. And he was one of those guys that went to see Mickey. He was a tweener, 6'7", 230. But he wasn't a guy who handled the ball. He wasn't a great passer. He was a rebounder. He led the country in scoring and rebounding one year, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the pace that... Loyola Marymount played that accentuated those numbers for sure, but he had to make those baskets to make that work. And I still miss him. We play our tournament, Full Court 21, in Philadelphia at the Hank Gathers Recreation Center in homage to him. So rest in power to the brother, Eric Wilson Hank Gathers. Also, shouts out to Armando Bacot, the big man for the University of North Carolina Tar Heels the preseason number one who may not even make the NCAA tournament for surpassing St. Michael Jeffrey of Wilmington on the Tar Heels all-time scoring list. Oh, he played four years and Jordan left after three. Stop. Let the man have his roses. It doesn't change the number. It doesn't change the fact. Just like people who will complain that the NCAA's second all-time leading scorer, Antoine Davis of the University of Detroit Mercy, finished his career three points short of the all-time scoring record held by one Pistol Pete Maravich. 3,667 points with no three-pointers. And since we're going to move the goalposts a little bit and say, well, Antoine Davis played five years in college and it took him five years to get it? Yeah. And Press Maravich, who also coached his son, just like Antoine Davis's dad Mike who used to coach in Indiana coaches his son he got all the shots and he didn't play against black players in the 60s because the SEC didn't allow that kind of tomfoolery as they would put it does it change the fact absolutely not he scored 3,667 points with no three-pointers and shot the lights out did they win a championship absolutely not but he has the record so we move on and look at our wooden list and the usual suspects for this season, Oscar Sheebway, who is the reigning and defending National Player of the Year. He's not going to win it this year, but Zach Eady from Purdue, the more likely winner of this award this year. is one of the top candidates, as well as Drew Tenney, the 19th year senior at Gonzaga. He's been there forever. He's like a professional student to me. And also a young man who, as a freshman, was slated to be a top five draft pick in the upcoming draft this year from the University of Alabama. Brandon Miller, who we've documented recently in regard to the murder case of, of his former teammate, Darius Miles, and a friend of his, Buzz Davis, the young lady who was murdered on the strip in Tuscaloosa. He was somehow eliminated from this list. Guilty before proven innocent, I suppose. But what we do have is his team, the number two ranked team in the country at the time, Alabama. Losing to the number 24 team, Texas A&M, with Brandon Miller playing stellar basketball. Some people allege that he should not be playing at this time because of what's happened. But happened. But wouldn't that kind of speak to, again, 
we're talking about tone deafness and understanding and awareness. Are we going to take away his chance to win a championship? Are we going to take away his opportunity to be seen by the pro scouts? Some people will say well, he somehow, indirectly or directly, was responsible for this young woman's death. That's going to be something to look at over March Madness. It will definitely be a story that people will repeat at nausea. That is a very slippery slope. Should he be playing? Should he not be playing? The Tuscaloosa DA has not charged him. The team on the verge of something special for themselves are maybe thinking selfishly, and I get that. Does it hurt? Yeah, in a lot of ways. And if it were someone else, maybe he wouldn't be playing. And when I say someone else, if someone else were murdered as a result, would he be playing? I don't know. Don't know. But let's go into the top five on the men's side. At number one on an 11-game losing strike, even though the strength of schedule, because I don't understand these seedings. I really don't. Not so much my top five, but when they start to rank and seed the, the teams for the NCAA tournament, quadrant one wins. I hear the, it's power, I get it, the power schedule, I get it. But you have to beat who's in front of you. They have to eat the food that's on your plate. And the University of Houston might not have the strength of schedule that would give them the number one seed. They are the number one team in the country right now, which is odd to me. But hey, they're going to find problems. They had a big, big win in Memphis over Anthony Hardaway, Penny Hardaway's team, who played valiantly at the end. But Jamal Sherrod hit a big, big basket to close out the game, winning 67-65 to for Memphis and getting ready for the NCAA tournament. They should be the number one seed, the overall seed, but they gave that to Kansas. I don't get Well, yes, I do get it the Teflon bill, and the quality of wins. No. If you're number one in the country, you're going to be the number one seed. You should be. That's on me. But my top five. At number one, the University of Houston Cougars. At number two, Mick Cronin's UCLA Bruins on a 10-game losing strike themselves. At number three, Shaka Smarts, Marquette University Golden Eagles. Six-game losing strike themselves. At number four, I got Kansas. Even though they lost to Texas, how could they be number one in the seedings, but they're number four in our top five this week as they had a seven-game losing strike snapped by the University of Texas, number nine ranked. And welcome back to the party. The leading scoring team in the country, the Gonzaga Bulldogs at number five. March Madness is upon us. I am ready. Are you ready to march through the madness? Stick with us, and we'll do more of that on the other side of this on the open run with Will Strickland. You're now listening to the sounds of the open run with Will Strickland, where the lecture is conducted from the mic to the speaker in conversation with myself and you, the listener, because it's therapeutic. Is it therapeutic that Paul George, who is arguably a Hall of Famer, when I looked at the comparison between Tracy Lamar McGrady and Grant Henry Hill, Paul George's accolades stack up. He also said that he's more than likely the second guy on a championship team. And he played like the first guy in a game this past weekend against the depleted Memphis Grizzlies. You know, without Dylan Brooks, who was suspended for a 16th technical, and without Brandon Clark, who was out with an Achilles injury for the rest of the season. Still without Stone Cold Stephen Grizzly Adams, and of course, Demetrius Demel Morant out finding himself right now and getting better. Salute to that. 
Memphis Grizzlies stuck them until Paul George closed the door. Is he the second? Well, I mean, make a conference final with your partner, Kawhi Anthony Leonard, and maybe make it to the NBA Finals, and we'll have that conversation. But until then, is it honesty? <laughs> it wasn't a secret. What is also not a secret, and so very glad to know that the widow of Kobe Bean Bryant, the late great, Vanessa Bryant was awarded $28 million plus from L.A. County for their insensitivity in the wake of the passing of Kobe, their daughter Gianna, and seven others in Calabasas, California on January 26, 2020. Allegedly, these, well, not allegedly because there's no $28 million of allegations. So these officers took the photos of these dismembered bodies and showed them off in a bar, making jokes about them as if, I don't get the macabre nature of it, but to each his own. Those are the most expensive jokes L.A. County ever told because there was another woman who was awarded $19 million plus as well for the same actions of the sheriff's office there. And so, was a joke worth $50 million? Apparently, L.A. County is sitting on that type of cheddar. Salute to Vanessa Bryant and her family. Sorry that you had to go through this tomfoolery in the first place. Speaking of tomfoolery, Charles Wade Barkley and his ongoing feud against Kevin Wayne Durant is speaking out of class and putting words in the mouths of the late, great Kobe Bryant and the hashtag he was champion named. They said they want to go and win championships on their own to earn the respect of the OGs, the guys who had done it on their own. You know, like Charles Barkley went, oh, wait, Charles Barkley never won a championship. And he didn't win it on his own. And the only time he made it to one was when he forced his way out of Philadelphia to go play in Phoenix with Kevin Johnson and Dan Marley and such. That part sometimes we leave out when people are throwing stones and hiding their hands. We try to make sure we expose those hands. Kevin Durant said, I don't need your approval. And he doesn't. He really doesn't. He is arguably a top 15 player of all time. Is Charles Barkley in that conversation? Mm. The fact that Shaq co-signed what Charles was saying, I didn't get. I get friendship and everything else. But I don't think that's the case. He doesn't need the respect of the OGs. He already has it. He was named one of the top 75 players of all time. So you don't have to validate him. There's no validation you can give him that he doesn't already have. And he understands that. And I get that. And I, I like, for, for some odd reason, I've liked this, I like this new media Kevin Durant. Because he now knows he can control his narrative. He can say what he wants to say. Through boardroom and his shows, the et cetera's and such. I respect it. I'm trying to respect, well, at least I do respect, Giannis Ugo Letarence purchasing ownership stakes in all kinds of properties like National SC, part of the MLS. You know, I know he's involved in pickleball and he has an ownership stake in the Milwaukee Brewers. I don't know if he has one in the Green Bay Packers, but I'm sure he's invested a lot. And I don't know if he's invested in these jokes that he allegedly told about Kevin Durant. And others. I'm talking about Nikola Jokic and people like that. But the ones on Kevin Durant were something that stood out to me. And that the guest host of Comedy Central's Daily Show, now that Trevor Noah has left, had Giannis read some jokes, some barbs about some of these players. And the one about Kevin Durant said, hey, why don't you come work out with me so I can show you how to carry your own team to a championship? And then immediately after, Giannis is apologizing and saying, hey, I love you and love your game. And I'm sure he does. He's always been pretty complimentary and, and pretty 
transparent about his respect for these players, his peers, and the league and whatnot. But this was something different. And you can look at it a couple of different ways because there are some lenses to look at this. Giannis is not some immigrant who doesn't know what he's saying, as people have alleged. And someone had to speak to him before the show to say, hey, this is what we want to do. Here's what you're going to read on air. Are you cool with it? He had to co-sign it. And maybe you could look at it as a joke. He's like famous for his bad dad jokes and such. But if he didn't feel a certain way about it, he wouldn't have apologized immediately after the fact. So he's well aware of what he was doing. And whether you credit Shakespeare with saying this or not, in jest, there's always some truth. And maybe he does really feel that way. And so are we seeing the real Giannis step up? Or is it just a joke? Just like him going out and padding his stats. Some people would call it stat padding if someone else did that. Oh, Russell Westbrook is trying to get his stats up so he can get another triple-double. Oh, blah, blah is doing that. Boy, Giannis pulled a Ricky Davis. Pulled an Andre Blatch, for those who don't know. Those are two young men who, in a time past, because, you know, this would never happen in a time past, tried to pad their stats to get the triple-double. Let's not act like these players are not aware of how many points they score, how many rebounds they have. It's on the boards above them. People are whispering to them on the bench. You're one rebound away from getting a triple-double. So at the end of the game that the Milwaukee Bucks clearly had in hand, Giannis is dribbling the ball out, kind of tosses the ball at the rim easily so he can get the rebound and complete his triple-double. Now, he's trying to honor an unwritten rule about scoring at the end of the game, especially if you've already won the game, by not dunking the ball and just finishing it off. But what he really needed was that rebound to complete his triple-double. And even he himself said, I kind of cheated on that one. No, duh. Not stat padding when Giannis does it, but stat padding when Russell does it. I don't like the narratives, and neither does Draymond Green, who said, you know, I've noticed that European players have not faced the same level of scrutiny to win championships as the American players who have won MVPs, whatever the case might be. So this is a direct shot at Nikola Jokic. Nikola Jermaine, that's J-apostrophe-M-A-Y-N-E. Is it a direct shot, or is it the truth? And how media is skewed toward the pressure being on these other players to win championships, and if they don't do that, they've failed themselves. This is the kind of thing we talked about last week on the show with Dwayne Watson. That the nerds who have taken over analytics in the front offices of these teams have now skewed the value proposition for each and every one of these players. But what won't be skewed is the value proposition you get on the podcast where basketball and life are one. So come back for more of the open run with Will Strickland on the other side of this. It is now winning time on the open run with Rose Strickland. I want to thank you for coming along for the ride today. And with that being said, it is now time for the news, views, and truths that you choose on the NBA and beyond. Happy birthday shouts out on his fifth and three quarters birthday, Tyrese Halliburton. Because he was born on February 29th, 2000, he won't actually be six until 2024. Really, he's 23 years old. But shouts out to Tyrese Halliburton, who would not mind the Sunday truce this past weekend as he closed out the Chicago Bulls in a game, had Patrick Beverly drapes all over him, pulled up from deep, 35-plus, in his grill, knocked it, then told Chatty Patty and the whole Chicago Bulls bench, he can't check me. Happy birthday. When Rick Carlisle, former Dallas Maverick coach, who had his own issues with a now 24-year-old 
Luca Lamar Doncic, who had a birthday this past weekend as well. The wizard that is Rick Carlisle was asked what he got Luca for his birthday. He said, I got him Tyrese Halliburton, who is also turning 24. Yikes. Still some ill feelings, a little saltiness. NACL. I see you, Rick. With just over one month left in this season, I'm very excited as the basketball has been great as a result. This past week, we've seen some amazing games. I'll talk about some games of the week in a little bit, but for sure, this weekend, playoff level games, and if the playoffs are anything like these games, I'm all in. It doesn't matter what conference or what teams, the intensity, the desire is there, and I appreciate it. The basketball gods... We thank you. Some milestones to look at, despite Kendrick Perkins pulling back the curtain and saying that everyone's stat pads and there are things that go on in NBA locker rooms to make sure guys hit certain accomplishments. Hard to knock Nikola Jermaine Jokic on joining the 100 triple-double club, second fastest all-time to only one Oscar, Palmer Robertson. And his triple-doubles, especially the last 24, have been significant in that dating back to even last year. 24 straight wins when he records a triple-double. If that means stat padding, keep stat padding because you're winning. The issue will be when he wins his third MVP and the comparisons between what he did if he doesn't make the NBA Finals or win an NBA Finals this year and what won Larry Joe Bird, the last person to win three straight back in 84, 85, and 86. Bernard King should have won in 84. That's just me. Or maybe it's not just me. But Bird won all three. And in those years, he went to three straight NBA championships as well, winning two of them. So the comparisons will end at the number three in the event that Nicola Jermaine wins his. But congratulations to Nicola Jermaine for making the 100 triple-double club. Also, a lot of big O conversation in the podcast today. Shouts out to Kevin Wayne Durant, now 13th all-time in the scoring list in NBA history, surpassing the great Oscar Robertson. Next up, he's about 150 or 60 or so points away from being number 12 and surpassing the great Hakeem Abdul-Elijahwan. Some injuries to report. The Time Lord, Robert Williams III, out 7 to 10 days. He's going to be key to what happens for the Boston Celtics, who have gone through a little swoon recently as Milwaukee's overtaken them in the East, and we'll talk about that when we go through our Power 10 for sure. Also, Jalen Brunson, who just recently missed a game, a big game we'll talk about in one of the games of the week between the Knickerbockers and the Boston Celtics as well. He's out for a bit. Lamelo LeFrance ball out the rest of the season. Broke his right ankle on a non-contact injury. It was crazy how it happened. And if Charlotte ends up winning in the Brick for Vic sweepstakes this summer in the draft, does that keep Lamelo ball there? What do they do with Miles Bridges? Will it be the first time that St. Michael Jeffrey of Wilmington has a team that he can field that says, hey, we have real aspirations here? And last but not least on the injury front, the hashtag he shan't be named out for what looks like more than a month right before the playoffs. Can the Lakers hold down the fort behind Anthony Marshawn Davis Jr. and the rest to make it to the playoffs? I know they had a big win this past weekend with the Warriors. They even dug up the riding remains of Andre Tyler Iguodala, brought him off the bench to make sure they won this game. Wardell Stephen Curry the second came back. Yeah, Steph, Clay, Dre, and Dre, but no Andrew Christian Wiggins, and still the Lakers defeated them. Hmm, who knew? While we're talking about games of the week, let's talk about the one that set it off for me personally. The Philadelphia 76ers versus the Milwaukee Bucks. The Bucks, who were undefeated in February, 
and were on a 16-game losing strike, one of their longest in franchise history. Looking great, Philadelphia is trying to prove themselves without Tobias Harris, without the artist formerly known as Anthony Leon Tucker Jr. No problem. As the Philadelphia 76ers overcame the Milwaukee Bucks, who are now loaded. I mean loaded. We're going to talk about some more of that in a second. And this was easily Joel Embiid's most important, and to me, his best game ever. Everyone pointed to the game where he dominated Nikola Jokic. He's probably the MVP. But plays he made on both ends of the court, and I said this on these rough interweb streets this past week, the term two-way player is brain-numbingly dumb, just like role player is. You have to play both ends of the court, whether you play them well or not, is the issue. But Joel Embiid making big plays on both ends of the court versus Giannis, and for himself against Brooke Lopez, who is playing great. And I'm looking forward to what happens with Milwaukee this year because they could look totally different next year with all the free agents they have in that squad. Who are they going to re-sign? With new ownership, you never know. But that was one of the best games of the season that I've seen. Also, this Dallas and Phoenix game was not that significant outside of the rivalry between Devin Armani Booker and Luke Lamar. That's with two R's. But you add in guys who were teammates about a month ago in Brooklyn, Kevin Wayne Durant and Kyrie Andrew Irving, and the situation gets stickier. And it was a great game. Luka had a chance to tie or win the game, missed an easy bunny at the end of the game where it looked like he could have charged into Josh Okoge, who was guarding him. And Devin Booker ran over and he was talking to referees, really. That should have been a charge. That should have been a charge. Luka took umbrage with that, and he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And runs up on Booker. Of course, the Holby back, Gene, and all of those guys kicked in immediately as no blows were thrown. Just a lot of tough talk. And Luka said, yeah, it's cool. I guess we lost. I missed the shot. My friends were even texting me saying, even I would have made that shot. But tell Devin Booker not to start talking with three seconds left in the game. Talk the whole game. Fair. I respect that. But what's to say that Devin Booker was not chirping the entire game? I love this. I cannot wait for the playoffs. And last but not least, in the games of the week, the New York Knickerbockers, quiet as kept, are 9-0 in a nine-game losing strike. Since the acquisition of one Josh Hart playing without Jalen Brunson and beating the Celtics, it's a very big deal. I mean, he was a great transaction in, in trade deadline pickup, but when you think about transactions, and I talked about the Bucks being loaded, live and direct, from the Waiver Wire Championship Chase Tour here at the Open Run HQ. My man Gordon Drogic, who's been on this world tour since 2020 when he was in Miami. And a key piece got injured during the NBA Finals and was never able to play as much as he wanted to in those finals. And it's hard to make the finals. I guess that's why he's been bouncing around to everywhere from Brooklyn to Chicago. Like he's been everywhere in the past two and a half seasons. But here he is in Milwaukee, going to be a key backup. And a guy with finals experience, not mad at Milwaukee for loading up and getting ready for the playoffs. And since we're talking about Milwaukee, let's start talking about the Power 10. At number one, the Milwaukee Bucks. At number two, the Boston Celtics. At number three, still the Denver Nuggets. At number four, the Philadelphia 76ers. At number five, the Memphis Grizzlies. Are they still good in the West? We don't know. At number six, the Sacramento Kings. Well, I flipped a little bit this week. At number seven, the New York Knickerbockers making moves, playing 
the right way, according to Tom Thibodeau, and I like what they're doing. They are playing a tough brand of basketball. Julius Randle has finally figured out his place and his role. I think he felt like his power would be usurped by a guy like Jalen Brunson, but Jalen Brunson has figured out a way to make sure that everyone eats and everybody stays happy. And number eight, the Cleveland Cavaliers dropped just a little bit, just a little bit this week. At number nine, the Phoenix Suns. And at number 10, still hanging on, the Brooklyn Nets. Before we get out of here, I want to send a shout out to my nephew who is getting married next month and making sure that my mother is able to see her grandchild tie the knot. I also think about this week, her birthday, and some really hard things that I think about sometimes as she gets older. I said earlier about hero worship, and I'm not really into that, but my mother is definitely one of my sheroes for sure. And I can't imagine a time when she's not around. And so her birthday, especially as she gets older, I try to celebrate it as best I possibly can, but it's also bittersweet. It's bittersweet not only for the fact that I don't know how many more we have left with her, not that she's in some poor health or anything, but just the numbers speak to it. And I don't see my mother living to 100 or me even going that far, but... It's also the same day that one Christopher George Latour Wallace was taken from us way back in 1997 in Los Angeles outside of the Peterson Automotive Museum during Sprite Night, which is what they used to call it during the Soul Train Awards, and how I was supposed to go and I didn't go. Still in New York and remember getting a phone call from a prominent New York radio personality at about 3.30 in that morning. She was on the phone and she was crying and she said, they shot him. They shot him. They fucking killed Big. They shot him. He was gone. So March 9th is my dear old girl's birthday, but it was also the day that we lost a friend in the notorious B.I.G. And so I'm thinking about Biggie and the way I want to celebrate moms and remember that whatever time I have left with her is much like my dear old dad, Buster, said to me, find something you're willing to die for and then live for it. I'm going to keep living to make you proud, moms, and hope that you have the best birthday ever. And thank you all for continuing to listen to me. So until next week, do remember, do what's popular with the population. Make sure you don't get beat off the dribble. And keep listening to The Open Run with Will Strickland. Rich Kid, my mellow, my man, music director for the Junos, which is the Canadian Grammys. Salute to you, my guy. Keep doing what you do when you do it. Easy.